Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Good morning, Alison. Hey, good afternoon, Andrea. How are you? I am awesome. Thank you for asking. I'm actually good. sitting by a fire for the first um, time oh. since we've been recording. We haven't really had to do many fires yet, but now it's getting a little chilly yeah. out. So I've had the fire going all night and it's been nice. The weather's turning here, or it has been a little bit. Suddenly last week it got quite cold mm. and... Um, it seemed very autumnal. We went to the market and there was lots of kale and fennel and things like that. Oh, that's nice. Um, but then, uh, as always happens in Italian autumn, suddenly the sun comes out and it feels like summer again <laughs> during during the you know the middle of the day. In the morning, it's freezing, yeah. very, very cold, and you need to cope. But as soon as that sun comes out, it, it's wonderful. So it's a sunny day today, and so it actually has felt kind of like a, I don't know, September day even though we're oh, yes. a lot further along than September which is nice. Does everything um, does everybody keep growing all winter there where you are? Yeah yeah pretty much oh. the crops change so instead of all the um, kind of tomatoes and melanzane and zucchini and all those kind of crops you turn into the greens so the broccoli appeared last week oh mm. i missed broccoli so oh much my goodness. and um tuscan kale cavolo nero lots of other kale fennel um, cabbages that will all carry on throughout the winter um, along with the winter fruits you may have some chestnuts soon um, and pomegranates are appearing everywhere um, so gable's been enjoying um, whacking those on the back with a spoon to get all the oh, bits yeah. inside out and um, persimmons and the citrus will start coming in soon so yeah everything really keeps growing wow. through the winter yeah just different such a lovely. vibrant cornucopia that you just described <laughs> yeah colorful it's and really awesome. oh, the smells of Christmas with all the different fruits and the and I love Tuscan kale so much oh yeah the depth of flavor in it that um, I could eat it every day I really could. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Do you, I have some recipes for um, supposedly descended from Italian recipes for like a kale soups mm. and um, mm -hmm. an Italian wedding soup. I don't mm. know. They're, they're really good. They're definitely some of our favorite winter soups, but I don't really mm. know exactly where they originated or, or why or how they're, you know, kind of tagged as Italian other than that yeah, you should send them across yeah i'll send them i'll send them across the ocean <laughs> you can analyze there are, them. <laughs> there are a lot of um stews and soups with tuscan kale in for sure and yeah. i love to put them in a slow cooker when i make something up like that because um they just they give a flavor that you just can't compare with any other veg and yeah. traditionally they were used in lots of stews with beans and yes. you know bits of pork yep that's um, what's the in winter. these that's what's in these. Um, yeah. Is, is Tuscan kale the one that we call dino kale over here? I think I've heard it called. No, I don't think so. No, I'm, okay. I'm not a kale expert, <laughs> but I remember when we used to go to the market in Penzance in England, they had all these different kales and I tried to learn them. I think dino kale is the kind of lighter green, slightly curly at the edge one, uh -huh. but maybe okay. I'm wrong. Tuscan kale is really dark, like black almost. 
and it's more upright and um, flat than dino kale. Huh. Okay, cool. I think. Well, um, Baker Creek Seeds, th- that guy is mm. really into, I mean, his, his life mission has been traveling around the world and just like going into the mountains and finding obscure seeds and farmers who have been cultivating just random things for years. And um, it's really fun to read his books and hear him talk about you know finding all these just varieties that you know a little tiny town somewhere in one mountain is just known for Mm. doing really really well um and he sells a whole variety of seeds so it's fun to look and see that some of the history of the specific plant and um yeah why it does so well where it came from and everything like that exactly yeah i think that's something that is is so important for us to to understand and grasp as a society that you know some things do well in some places yeah. and some things don't do well you know why. the world has very different territories yeah. and to eat local means to look around you yeah. and say well what can this land around me grow and to well, that's diversify what I, I don't know if you ever watched the i mean it's it's from your people the show downtown abbey um <laughs> the I I watched it. My people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I watched it whenever it was coming out, um, which was mm. it's. I think the first season actually came out in the UK in September 2012, um, and it. Mm. I don't. It must have come here shortly after or right around the same time because that's about when I saw it. So. Um, mm. But, anyway, so I've been listening to it while I've been working on all these really tedious projects like chopping jalapenos and stuff like that. And, um, yeah. cause I've seen it before, so I don't really have to see it again, but I can hear it. And, um, <laughs> they're talking about how they're, you know, the Julian fellows uses all these, you know, historical themes to tell a story and to tell, inform us about the history and stuff like that. And he's talking about how all these estates and everything were just going to, collapse and fail because they they didn't diversify and they didn't um you know join the modern centuries and things like that and then i was thinking about the tudor monastery and how diversified they were with you know they they Mm -hmm. had all their different varieties of crops like the peas and the and the sheep wool and um, candles and salt and things whatever they produced and then i was thinking about shannon hayes and how she was saying how you know Mm -hmm. farms over years have always been wildly diverse because you just never know what's going to completely fail like all your hogs could yeah. die and you know <laughs> then you just have to eat pumpkins for the rest of the year or something and then i was thinking mm-hmm. about how in modern times it's almost like i'm watching downton abbey play out again you know everybody's um source of income kind of like the earl of grantham or whatever is just this one thing and um they're not that people are more slowly diversifying, you know, and, and adapting to the fact mm. kind of like in the whole show's arc is kind of based on his unwillingness to adapt. But um, oh, I see. I don't know. This has just been on my mind a lot lately, thinking about how farms, you know, have always faced this need to diversify. And and if they don't, um, you know, it, it can be a real struggle. And anyways, I don't even know why I brought that up. Yeah, well, I was <laughs> listening to I've been listening to some podcasts um by the um, journalist Jilly Smith. She did oh. a series with a chain of restaurants in the UK called Leon, who um, okay. do some fabulous food in London. They're like, not not expensive. You can just go in and take away, but they oh. do 
um, you know, sustainable foodstuffs. And I was listening to an interview with Patrick Holden, the dairy farmer who runs um, Sustainable Food Trust, and just listening to him talk about diversity and not only how, you know, how people have needed to, but how the soil needs absolutely to, yes. because of what the different crops do and because of the different um, species of animals and insects that are associated with all of the different crops. And it's it's... It just all fits together like a jigsaw when you think of it like that. And yeah. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And, it, you know, when I, when I think about monocropping and what we're doing to a lot of the world, it seems so counterintuitive to anything yeah, it does. sensible. It does. I mean, literally, the, you know, the best farming just looks at nature and imitates it almost as closely as possible. And mm. nowhere, nowhere do we really see even you might say oh what about the prairie grass well get down in the prairie grass <laughs> tell me how monocrop yeah. that is it is not monocrop it's highly diverse um and and not to mention it's a symbiotic in terms of you know you've got herds of all variety of animal trampling over it in different cycles and then fires coming through yeah. and stuff like that so we just don't have an example in nature of monocrop like it just doesn't exist yeah yeah indeed we could talk about this for the whole episode couldn't we <laughs> what? well okay we, we better start um what do you have for lunch <laughs> ah well for once i'm not going to say heart ah, has no heart <laughs> get ready for it yeah i i had lentils oh yum um, yum they were very nice uh, red lentils which have been um de-hulled the hull taken off cooked in some stock with a lot of different spices i can't remember but i know turmeric was in ooh, there and cumin ooh, yum. Um, nigella seeds uh, coriander uh, ginger a whole load of other wow. spices um so i cooked that for rob and i gabriel wasn't with us today for lunch um, he's not so hot with lentils so it was an <laughs> opportunity for us to <laughs> us to enjoy them and i had two slices of sourdough one uh, a spelt sourdough with an oat scored in it the other a rye and barley sourdough both of them covered in um, home rendered lard and then I had some Tuscan kale which we just boiled up um, and I put lemon juice and olive oil on the top of it with my sauerkraut on the side mm. it was really really nice now question on the kale do mm. you do you see anybody in Italy eating it raw or does is it pretty much traditionally cooked or fermented? I don't think I've been, I don't think I've seen anyone eating it raw. No. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think I see any anybody where where it's older eating it raw. I don't know why it's so popular no. to eat it raw over here. I mean, holy cow! You have to chew for a really long time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a cavalonera. I don't know if you can eat raw. Oh, so, yeah. So um, it takes takes. You can cook it forever, and it still tastes all right. You know, it's like one of oh. those serious vegetables. Um, but the lighter kales. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that there's a, a trend to eat them raw and massage them with salt and mix them with avocado and salad and that kind You're of thing. You're trying to mimic but, um, ferment at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's any traditional dish. I might be wrong, so That's true. don't quote me on that's it. True. But I haven't seen in any recipe book that I've ever looked at, huh. a, you know, a, a dish that's been around for hundreds of years that has uncooked kale in yeah, it. Yeah, I have not seen one either, and I've kind of been yeah. just looking... Um, I know it's also yeah. also kind of popular to take like the baby leaves because they're more tender 
um, ah, okay. and eat those raw. But I don't really know if that has any sort of historical precedence or not. But that I'll that sounds so good, and now. just I might have to do some lentils this week. I've got a lot of broth right now, so lots of excuse to cook. That's perfect. Then. Cook all kinds of the. Have you had breakfast? No. <laughs> Am I making you hungry? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I'll, I'll happily eat some lentils and sourdough for breakfast. I'm gonna have a sourdough pancake mm. when I go upstairs, and I'll probably what I've pretty much been doing is having a sourdough pancake with two eggs. Um, so okay. that's kind of been my breakfast right now, and then. By the time the kids get up, I'm ready for breakfast again. Because if you <laughs> eat at like 4.30, by the time they get up, it's already been four hours and I'm hungry again. So yeah. <laughs> then I make, yeah. I make breakfast and I'll happily eat again. But, um, yeah, just a sourdough pancake. I, I, I'm excited to talk about our subject today because, um, yeah, they, talking of sourdough pancakes, pancakes definitely feed into what I've been learning about mm. myself. <laughs> so where to start? We're, today we're talking about grains. <laughs> and I think that this idea came up because I, I get a lot of questions in my Instagram feed about grains and yeah, um, me too. direct messages about them. And um, particularly in the ancestral eating community, you know, there are, there are a lot of um, ways of eating that don't include grains. And yeah. um, I think I thought it was about time that we we tackled it and I know you want yeah. to so where would you like to start where to begin well let's go back in history and just talk about mm. you know humans and grains because that's actually that's even like a point of controversy nowadays if I can even say that you know oh did humans ever eat grains and things like that mm. so mm. it's interesting because I've been reading um a book called Cytopia by Carolyn Steele uh -huh. the last couple of weeks and she um, proposes something that I've not read before um, about the beginnings of agriculture. So the times that um, the humans started to farm and that was around 12,000 years ago. And I've always read before that um, before that, probably we did eat grains, but we only did it kind of sporadically because we could only just, you know, collect what was growing wild, what grasses were growing wild. And I previously read that, you know, we perhaps settled and started farming because yeah. of the discovery of you know bread and how we could use bread to fuel ourselves and i have also read somewhere else that we settled because of the discovery of beer <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. how people just you know could create this fabulous substance that would um move them to a different realm with grains but in carolyn Steele's book she argues that um, farming started because humans were forced to farm because right. there were temperature changes, which meant in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, um, foraging and hunting particularly for animals became uh, much more difficult. There were mm, not as many um, animals going around and therefore man had to adapt. And of course, you know, humans are fabulously adaptable creatures and the the um, finality of that, what happened was that we settled and started farming. I mean, I'd not heard anyone say that before. Um, and I wondered whether you, whether in all your reading you've done about grains, um, what you've read about the beginnings of farmings and how that relates to the history of grains. Well, it's kind of funny because what I was actually going to say isn't from something I read, but it's from something I listened to. Mm. Um, 
but I mean, you can go back to the sources and read more about this too, but on the history of food podcast, which is interesting, um, you know, it's like, like Zootopia, you know, somebody's going to share with you both their opinion, both archaeological fact, and then kind of their thoughts, their conclusions. Um, so he also posits the idea, which I know is definitely not an uncommon one, that, um, you know, grains were kind of the foundation of civilization. Um, what's interesting, Sally Fallon has a book also about, um, I'm trying to remember the name of what the book is called. Um, I'll look it up while we're talking, but, um, mm -hmm. she talks about how everybody says, oh yeah, you know, we were just hunter gatherers and we didn't really eat grains before. And she says kind of like, it sounds like Satopia is saying that, no, there is a lot of evidence that people were eating grains anywhere and as much as they could find them. Um, and then in, she relates this interesting, story about when um, explorers went to Australia and they kept commenting on how these fields of grain looked cultivated but they surely couldn't be because they all the um, Aboriginal people there were nomadic but she said what they've seen in um, both like uh, North American history and in Australia and I don't know where else if she said other places but they've seen that what people are actually doing was almost like a form of mobile cultivating so cultivating and then traveling and then cultivating and then traveling so you might hmm. it, kind of like the Bible says one man sows another reaps you know <laughs> kind of like that hmm. maybe um, was her theory um, you know, people were cultivating as they went and they might not necessarily be the one to get the harvest, but because everybody knew it was good for everybody, then that was kind of her theory. Everybody was just sort of cultivating as they went. Oh, it was nourishing diets. It's very egalitarian. Yeah. It, yeah, okay. it is. Nourishing diets, how paleo ancestral and traditional peoples really ate. I, I don't know if it was like a totally egalitarian spirit or if they're like, boy, I hope I get to come back here and eat this or not. I have no idea. Yeah. She didn't really theorize too much about that but um the thing that um go on oh i was just gonna say in the history of food podcast when yeah. he also of course everybody oh. you know you can't talk about the history of food without talking about the fertile crescent and he was saying mm. that it, it he finds it a little bit hard to tell if we started cultivating grains so we stayed in one place or we stayed in one yeah. place so we started cultivating yeah. grains but either way, yeah. we see the rise of, you know, actually building, okay, now I want to protect, now I have a store of food, now I need to protect it, you mm -hmm. know? So even wars yeah. began to arise more so because now you're like, okay, well, I'm going to draw a line here. This is where, yeah. you know, my people are. Um, it's just so fascinating to see. And that came about with, you know, trying to save, preserve, store, and, and guard your food. It's really, it's fascinating when you, um, when I have been so brought up and steeped in kind of commercial food culture from the last 50 years. I just finished reading a book on farmhouse brewing, which, um, in which the author talked about the history of farmhouse brewing. And it became really clear to me as I was reading it that literally every household yeah. Um, or every farm used to grow their own grains. Yeah. You know, so there would be a household 
and they would know that they wanted bread and they wanted beer to subsist for the year and so they would have a field where they grew grains and they did the harvest they did the threshing they did the working or they took it to the local mill and they made the beer and they made the bread and you know whatever grain they had depending on where they were so you know if they were up north they're more likely to have oats or rye um, and be making beer or suans or Mm. you know rye crackers or oat cakes or if they are down south perhaps here in Italy they would be growing spelt or wheat and making different breads with that and it it just is fascinating to read example after example and see pictures in that book that every household grew their own grain and we are so far removed from that now and it's um it's not been that long in history since then Mm mm-hmm and yeah, everything's completely changed. Um, yeah. And, and grain was, I mean, grain's important to us now, but like you're saying, grain would have been so important. Those food stores would have been so important to yeah. those people. And, and grain, as we know, grain was used as a currency for, for a very long time. Um, and so it really has had so much worth put on it as, as part of our diets through history. Yeah. Well, even... I mean, the way we measure land, we say, oh, uh, how many acres is it? Um, do, what do you guys use in the mm. UK? Do you say acres or hectare? hectare? Acres, yeah. Acres, okay. I use, I use acres. Yeah, I mean, it's an old English term. Um, and it means open field. And the way they came up with an acre was it's how about how much an oxen could plow in a day. So um, uh. it was literally based on agriculture was how they're measuring mm. um right. land and um and i was listening to a, a podcast interview with um what was her name nicolette han was that or nicole han ham neiman yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Han, han neiman yeah um she you know she feels like the plow was not necessarily a good thing for um mm you know land because as we know once you turn over the soil now you're losing lots of um bacteria mm. and things like that so you know plowing itself is this whole um kind of historical controversy just because it's again it's a non-nature way of mimicking things um mm. but that that was an interesting interview that she gave I, I can see if I can find it again and link it in the show notes. She's a really interesting woman. She is. We have to get her she on the is. podcast. Yeah, for sure. We'll link, to, we'll link to that and maybe link to her book, Defending yeah. Beef, in the show notes, because that's fascinating too. Yes. Okay, so we, we kind of covered the history. And, and most of the questions that I get about grains are partially to do with avoiding grains. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, either coming off avoiding grains or should I avoid grains or problems with grains right. um, how can I have not have problems with grains and so I thought it would be useful to talk for a little while about why people avoid grains um, and um, my own experience of it and then shoot over to you and, and talk about that okay. so shall I yeah crack on yeah crack on so <laughs> crack on with it so um, I think the main reason why people avoid grains is that they are relatively hard to digest compared to other foodstuffs. So, you know, for example, a piece of fruit has a simple sugar in it and our body doesn't need to do much to break that down. Whereas grains, the starches in grains are more complicated. They're polysaccharides and disaccharides. 
and our body needs to break those down into simple sugar sugars to be able to um, absorb and use them and also grains have um, compounds in them that are toxic and can be and can cause problems for our digestion so for example like phytic acid so our stomach has to work harder to digest them and if we have a digestion that's compromised in some way um, which a lot of us do because we've grown up in the standard way of eating then we can really have problems whether we have um, something that's diagnosed like SIBO or um, some form of irritable bowel syndrome or whether we just you know have something that we know is wrong but hasn't been diagnosed you know grains are blamed for lots of things including things you know like brain fog and mm-hmm. fatigue and that kind of thing um i think it's important to say that you know simple sugars like fruits they're easy to digest but those sugars go straight into the bloodstream which is often hard for the metabolism if we are eating those on their own um, so grains do have a good side in the fact that they take more time to digest which gives us sustained energy and doesn't put so much of a pressure on our blood sugar regulation but obviously the bad side of it is our stomach has to work harder and putting aside for a moment um, people who have damaged digestive capacity really I think the the difficulties in digesting grains or a lot of the difficulties in digesting grains are because we don't process them in the way that our ancestors processed them, in the way that they knew would make the grains easy to digest and neutralise a lot of the phytic acid. Um, are you of the same mind as me, Andrea, there? Or yes. what's your take on No, I feel the same. Yeah. I feel the same. Yeah, okay. So really, um, the diets that restrict grains, for example, paleo, Um, and the autoimmune protocol gaps they are often and best used in my opinion for specific periods of healing Mm -hmm. when you know you have a problem Um, but if you can move your digestion to a place where it is healing and you are improving then judicious choice and processing and use of grains in your diet is a wonderful thing because they are so nutritious, properly processed, they taste amazing, and they can give you such um, slow-release energy. Um, And they are much easier to process than cooking up a load of carrots or swede um, or things like that, like I did when we did GAPS for two years. You know, the work that was involved in cooking up enough simple sugared carbohydrate vegetables for us to keep us going was yeah quite something so (laughs) yeah i think really each of us if we like grains should be aiming to be able to include them in our diet whether we are a long way away from that or whether we're very close to that and a lot of the questions that i get are people who've cut them out for a while and then are scared to start them again and i can completely understand that because Um, As a family, we were on gaps for three years and many times before that as well, when I ate raw vegan particularly, I didn't eat any grains. And so I've been long periods of time without grains and I've done 
particular healing protocols and put a lot of energy and effort and love into those. And then coming off something like GAPS when you've been on it for three years and you've not had bread for three years, it's extremely daunting to think about, oh my gosh, really, can I bring these grains back into my life? You know, they used to do this to me. They used to do that to me. They used to make me ill and give me brain fog and make me feel fatigued. I just don't want them. How can I bring them back into my life? And and it's a huge question and one that I hope that both of us can um, can share for the rest of the podcast about um, the way that grains can be eaten ancestrally and included in a diet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so interesting, Alison, that just thinking about like as you're talking about you know diets and things that we're doing to leave grains out we have such a bizarre experience in this modern age in that like our primary like in the western i don't don't know just in like america i'll just say because that's what i see so I, Mm. i won't even comment on anywhere else so like in america the biggest problems facing people are coming up with strategies to eat less food. Like, think about that. Yeah. That's our cultural crisis is coming up with mental strategies and games and, and ideas and, and, you know, methods to eat less food. Like that's what we're facing now throughout Mm. all of history. The number one problem has been that nobody has enough food. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's what we have always faced. And now we have, literally the opposite problem which is killing just as many people as starvation was it's Mm. like oh my gosh so i was i've tried to look and see and i've always kind of had an ear out for was there ever a time in history when somebody said ah this these grains are probably pretty bad for us i don't think we should eat them i've not run across (laughs) it maybe it's out there you know but I haven't run across Mm. it yet, especially the farther back you go. It was always just like, okay, how can we cultivate more of this? How can I, you know, fill my, I mean, the, the story of Joseph in the Bible is literally, he's like hoarding grain for seven years and everybody from the countries around him is coming to buy bags of grain. They weren't like, I feel like I should only be eating, you know, Mm. lamb right now. No, they were like, give us anything, you know? Um, so I, I don't know if there's this big thing there's this well there certainly was this big thing when I was growing up in the UK that grains make you fat yes yes and is it this is you what know, carbs I'm, make you fat grains make you fat. like I yeah totally if you eat you know bagels for breakfast muffins for lunch pop-tarts for dinner yeah you can have a pretty big problem um but I just wonder if um if we've ever looked at grains and said you know maybe the grain itself isn't bad maybe we just have like three generations of abusing the way that all people have always eaten them Mm. and always been able to Mm. extract this good energy from them energy that makes you more symbiotic with your farm in the sense that you know you can produce some grains and you can eat some animals but you're not having to do thousands of either one you know yeah like when you really eat off of your farm not just like oh I went to Costco and bought like a ton of meat then um, you really have to weigh how much meat you're going to put on the table every day and we do that balancing act here too because we only have meat that we either raised ourselves or that a friend butchered and so 
you know, Mm -hmm. we have to decide, well, you know, there has to be some portion of organs, some portion of bones and some portion of meat, not necessarily because we're trying to achieve this like magic ratio of eating it, but because that's what we have, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, yes, we're souring grains to go with the meal to make the meat go farther. Um, So and I, I don't know, there's there's definitely really popularized carnivore diets right now, and I'm not saying anything against anybody who's doing those. Like, if somebody's doing that and it's working for them, like, I'm not going to get in their way. Um, I just wonder why, you know, fat was really vilified for a long time, um, mm. and, and, and right now I feel like grains are getting that kind of treatment. I think that... Um... The demonizing of grains is yeah, intrinsically linked to uh, to um, industrialization yeah. because that's where yep. the the process of refining grains and creating white flour and feeding the masses on white flour, which yeah. has less nutrients, is faster. You know, it it's easy to mix it into something and give you calories to keep you going a factory or in an office now you know um and it it feels to me like as we come find a full circle from that and people are more informed now and people are taking action around their health and seeing the way they eat that the demonizing of grains will come naturally from that because that's the grains that we've grown up on you know and yeah exactly i think it's probably yeah is white wheat say, flour like, made into kind of fat in salt induced things then absolutely. then you're you're gonna react like that and i think i think as a as individuals it's easier for us for us to react to something so you know if we think oh gosh these grains are making me ill well okay let's just go 180 completely the other side and cut them out of my diet you know, like people look at uh, the factory farming industry yeah, and yeah. say, oh, oh I don't yeah, want to be involved in that. OK, right. Let's go 180 and become a vegan. Yeah. Whereas mm. life is more nuanced than that. And it pays as an individual and as part of a society to look deeper at the issues and the problems and the history of things and to learn I don't know if compromise is the right word. You know, I, I'm I'm a, a kind of all or nothing person. So, you know, when I when I wanted to lose weight age 20, I cut all fat out of my diet. Well, that was a bit of a mistake. You know, when I when I didn't like the industrial meat industry, well, I went vegan. And I look back at these things and I think life is more nuanced. And it's natural that we might react because of the way we are and because of the way we've been brought up and say, I don't want grains but I think grains have a, a lot to offer. Yeah. We just need to learn how to work with them, like we can learn how to work with the soil, like we can learn to work with nature. Right. And we just have to learn how to work with grains by looking back at how the people who knew how to work with them before science told them any of the stuff that we know now and, and learn from them. Yeah. I think come, I, come down oh, from the soapbox now. That was now. such a good comparison, <laughs> Alison. And I think you're. It, it it is harder to make a nuanced change than it is to like just mm. do an all or nothing um, 
cold turkey type thing, honestly. And Mm. I wonder if, I truly wonder if grains would be getting the same kind of treatment that they do right now from everybody. If the only grain you knew was a soaked, soured, Mm. spelt, and a soured einkorn. Like, if those are the only grains you had ever had, would you now be treating them the way that we are treating them now? Probably not. And you and you had to cook them yourself in your house, so you knew the value of them and didn't just grab a sandwich or a bit slice of yeah. pizza, you know? So yeah. they became a, a balanced part of yeah. a diet rather than, than the whole of it. Yeah. It's really so it's right. fascinating for me to look back at my own diet, you know, when, when I was a kid, because I would have cereal for breakfast, so that would be... Mm a grain mm-hmm. with pasteurized milk on it that had been processed to... <laughs> to <know>. oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> Almost, yeah, to, to the end of its life. And then a sandwich made of bread in a plastic packet from a supermarket. Oh, man. And then for dinner, sometimes it was potatoes, because, you know, potatoes are, are kind of an English thing um, very much. But often it would be some other form of grain, like a you know a pizza style thing or something with pasta in and it it's amazing how easy it is without thinking in that world to just you know eat the majority of your calories from highly refined sitting on a shelf in a packet grains and yeah we maybe I'm going around in circles here but it's no wonder that we have problems with grains yeah well and your 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 true British thing would be peas, not not potatoes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. <laughs> Going me, back even further. <laughs> let me read this quote and then then take us into our next mm. section. So this is a quote. Yeah, okay. a Quote I sent you a few days ago. Lexi had posted it on Instagram, and I just loved it. It's from G.K. Chesterton, and he said, mm. "Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead." Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I feel like that is the attitude that shaped Sally's book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Take us forward, Alison. What next? Yeah, so let's stop talking about um, (laughs) why grains have been demonized (laughs) and let's start digging into and getting our hands into how we can best... Um, process grains in our homes to make them most suitable for us so um, maybe I'll start with kind of an overview of processing different options for processing grains Um, and then we could move into talking about how we eat and process grains in our houses how about that I like it okay so what what I want to say about processing grains is kind of useful for anyone who wants to include grains, but this is really important and speaks to those who have not had grains in their diet for a while. When we came off of the GAPS diet as a family, um, I started processing grains in into sourdough. That's when I started making sourdough. And that really was when I ramped up my fermentation of grains. And since that time, which was uh, five years ago, maybe four, four and a half years ago, 
the the way that I treat grains in my kitchen is is completely transformed and I would not go back to eating grains even as I did before gaps let alone how I did as a kid Mm. so with grains I mean you can ferment grains fermenting is a fabulous way of processing grains because not only do they get to soak which softens them and makes them easier to digest but they get the action of the fermentation starter whatever it is you put in there those bacteria and those yeasts on the grains and those allow the um, anti-nutrients in them the toxic plant compounds to be neutralized and they also start the pre-digestion process so they basically just take a huge weight off our own intestines in the processing that it needs to do and makes the grain softer and brings out more nutrients and um, neutralizes anti-nutrients so for fermenting you can ferment your grains um, into a porridge you can um, ferment grains or flour into sourdough bread. You can ferment flour or grains into pancakes, just like you're going to do for breakfast in a bit. And there's a big history of making fermented grain drinks, certainly throughout um, Europe, um, with very many different grains. And really, those four things that I've just mentioned, porridges drinks pancakes and sourdough really consists i would say 80 percent of the grains that we eat in this house and really it doesn't have to be complicated in that you know if you don't know how to make sourdough it doesn't matter you can make a porridge really easily by just blending up some grains with some water and plobbing a bit of whey or a bit of um sauerkraut or a bit of yogurt into that and leaving it on the side for a day that is not a difficult thing to do pancakes are really easy just do the same but with flour you can make flatbreads like that you can make naan breads like that you can make um little flatbreads or cakes in the oven like that you know you do not need to be a whiz at sourdough and i mean sourdough has very many levels of complication um in the you know that at one end there's the really um, open crumb tartine wonderful you need a very strong skill set for it but really what you need to be healthy and happy is a simple bread on your table Mm -hmm. so you know even if you think you can't do sourdough there's there is a simple way of making sourdough Mm -hmm. and really our ancestors just did this you know they they worked with the grains they milled it themselves and then they left it out with water and and it fermented before i um before we did gaps most of the fermentation that i did of um grains was without a sourdough starter because i wasn't making sourdough so i used to ferment buckwheat um i used to soak whole buckwheat groats and ferment them wild literally just leave them and then i'd pour that batter of those fermented oat wheat um buckwheat groats into a pan and make a in quotes bread I used to do the same to make a pizza base because I didn't make sourdough, but I still fermented a lot of grains. You know, it, it doesn't, it really doesn't have to be complicated. Um, do you want to add something to, to fermenting and processing, Andrea? Well, I, I guess what I want to say is that it is very, very simple and easy. And I'll use the quote that I know I've used a number of times on here from... 
mm. slow down farmstead, which is it's not hard, it's just different. So yeah, um, I definitely feel like like there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who they are like ah, I've been making sourdough for a long time. And then there's also a lot of people who are like, hey, I'm looking, I, you know, I want to start eating grains, you know, maybe a more humane way. <laughs> and um, so I just want to do what I can to help dispel any myths. I think the fact that there's so many huge, hardcover, glossy, shiny, beautiful books about making sourdough bread, it can start to feel really intimidating. Mm. But it is actually quite, quite basic. And then you can just... Um, expand on it from there and get fancy if you want to kind of like you said mm. and the mm. the um nourishing traditions book she actually has a nourishing traditions cookbook for children that i recently got and mm. honestly if somebody feels intimidated about this stuff just get the nourishing traditions book for children because it is beautiful it's very simple um, she has enough of the science in there that you literally know what is going on, but it's not like drowning you in information. Mm -hmm. And, and then you can see that it's so easy that like a five-year-old can do it. It's so, so simple. And a lot of these foods that Allison and I talk about are very fast when you're actually preparing them. As long as you yeah. did that step, you know, the day before or whatever, like these pancakes I'm going to have for breakfast. I, I mixed them, I don't know, four days ago. Like so easy. I just got to get the jar out and pour it on the hot stove and it's done. Right. Yeah. But, um, so a lot of ancestral food, like we've said before, it is fast food. The grains are fast food once they've been pre-processed, just like, and yeah. it just takes that extra step in the advance. Um, which can be the hard part, honestly, because you're like, oh, I didn't do that yesterday. But getting more mm. in the habit of it helps. So Yeah, it's a slow process. Once you start remembering yeah. a few days, then it, it's a habit yeah. that And it's not like you have just to grows. stand there spending an hour making breakfast or lunch or no. whatever. Um, but you did that little step like the, the night before, the day before, whatever. And you let the chemistry do most of the work. And now you just have, you know, to cook it very quickly. So, yeah, it does. The other thing that um, I thought would be useful to talk about, particularly for people who want to reintroduce grains, is the idea that that not all grains are equal. Ooh, yeah. um, I mean, I think people, most people know that kind of processed wheat is perhaps not the grain to start with right. if you haven't had grains right. for a long time. But remember that there is a spectrum of grains. So if you want to um, do something similar to wheat, but not wheat, there are lots of ancient varieties of wheat that are less complicated, have been less modified along the centuries. Um, there are also spelt and various versions of spelt um, the einkorn and the spelter and the emma. Um, in addition, there are many non-gluten grains that can be used and bread made with them. So the example of buckwheat that I gave you earlier on is a non-gluten grain, which you can use to make into bread or make pancakes with or make a porridge with really nicely. Um, the other 
thing that's been quite important in um, our family's life is um, lectins and lectin-free grains. So lectins are a plant protein which um, is created by the plant in order to ward off um, predators and it's a toxin and for some people it's a problem. It can cause um, inflammation in the body and then the various symptoms that come from that depending on you know what your leaning is whether you end up with eczema or um, brain fog. And um, lectin free has been quite um, important for us in healing our son Gabriel in that we took him as far as we could with gaps and the various other protocols we've done and all the processing of grains I've done but we still around six months ago had an issue and it was really understanding lectins and experimenting with things that we thought he was eating that might have a he might have a problem with that we've come to understand that he does have a problem with some lectins. And so the grains millet and sorghum, which are both available here locally in Italy, are lectin-free. And I use those in my kitchen every day. I think that they're easier for us to digest because they're gluten-free and lectin-free. But they're, they're really nice and can be made into porridges, they can be made into drinks, they can be made into pancakes, and I make a bread with them too. And so if I would say if you're if you've been off grains for a while and you want to reintroduce them, listen to your own body and, you know, experiment, think about the things you've had problems with in the past and try perhaps with some of the lighter grains first, ferment them and see how you get on with those before perhaps you move to some of the other grains that might be slightly more difficult to digest. And that's been our experience and I thought that might be helpful yeah. to um to the daunted people out there who, who want to start grains again but aren't sure how to. Yep. Do you eat lectin free grains or any of that kind um, of millet sorghum buckwheat gluten free stuff? Well we do have them mixed into things but we don't really have a special focus on it. Yeah. I actually okay. couldn't tell you So if- what what grains do you use? Um, let's see. Well, we use a pretty wide variety. I do have some wheat. We don't use loads of wheat, but we do have wheat. Um, mm. let's see. Einkorn, lots of einkorn, obviously. Uh, spelt. Mm. I don't know. Do I count buckwheat? I mean, it's, isn't it's technically a seed, yeah. but I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, I count it. Yeah. Um, if we're counting grains, we do have rice. We don't use tons of rice, but we do have it from time mm. to time. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think what else. And do you eat whole grain rice or white rice? No, we eat white rice. And why do you do that? Um, it it came down to digestibility. <laughs> mm, so it seemed like the, I don't know, maybe we'll try the brown rice again sometime. Um but it almost seemed like the symptoms were worse with brown rice. Um, yeah, I would concur with that. And that the reading that I've done concurs with that, that um, there are more of the things that you would have problems digesting in yeah, the um, and I, I don't really know. In the brown rice. I don't, I'm not, I don't know. Is there ways to ferment rice? I have no idea. Um, I never. Yeah, really yeah, definitely. That. I mean, other than like koji yeah. rice and things like that. Yeah, but you can mix it with... Um, Traditionally in India, mixed with um, pulses to make doses. Oh yeah, pancakes. Yeah, yeah. 
um, with so often I've done I haven't done it for a while but rice with um, lentils blended up fermented <clears throat> and then put in the cast iron pan into yeah. pancakes really right. really lovely our kids love um, <clears throat> excuse me um, rice and milk which probably sounds disgusting to most people <clears throat> um, I think it's I think it's like a descendant of a milk pudding type thing or a rice pudding type okay, thing okay yeah um, so every once in a while we make that kind of as a well to them it's like a special treat to me it's a special treat too because <laughs> I make it if I just don't have time to do anything else and so they get so excited because it's I mean it's rice who doesn't love hot rice with raw milk on top mm. right so um, they love that but and they they ask for it all the time but I'm always telling them you can't really eat that all the time it's not really like a meal exactly <laughs> it's not really uh, got that much nutrition in it for you so it's kind of just one of those special emergency type things Aww. talking about rice <laughs> I remembered that um, Kobo from Entry on Instagram talked me into making um, an Indian dish and I've forgotten what the name is um, and it was rice that had been cracked so I put some white rice oh. in my coffee grinder and cracked it a bit and then I fermented it for three days and then I cooked it up um, and I added some coconut milk because Gabriel can't have normal milk and traditionally it's been served with kind of coconut and sweet spices and um, jaggery the name for sugar kind of unprocessed sugar in India and it was really delicious and mm. Gable liked it you just talking about your kids with rice and milk reminded yeah. me of that fermented rice dish and then I used the <laughs> I used the water that I fermented the rice in to wash my hair with because ah. there's some research that this tribe in the mountains somewhere these women have gorgeous hair in their oh 90s and they wash their hair with the with the soak water from from fermenting rice so um, I got persuaded into trying yeah. it BRB, I because I think some rice. <laughs> it has certain proteins in it. And maybe this is true for any soak water you would put in grains. I don't know. Ooh, Someone should, should do an experiment that it makes your hair all shiny because um, it's got lots of good things in apparently. Well, I feel like we use, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great to me. I feel like we use a pretty wide range of um, grains. We also, we've always, almost always had teff on hand um i know aaron did that amazing video for the um yeah patrons for the patron Um, yeah and he talked about using teff to make the um injera pancakes and Mm. so i i bought more because when i went to go get some out and make his pancakes i didn't have any more so i ordered some from azure but Mm. um yeah, we use a pretty wide. What gets variety. what's grown where where you are? What's what's grown? Oh, there's locally quite or a lot kind of semi locally. Um, there is a decent mm. amount of grain production out here, but I would say the majority mm. of those kind of big crops happens over the mountains on the desert side, just because land is so oh, much more expensive over here. Um, yeah. So the any farms with like huge fields that are producing an income are farms that have been in a family for a long time because. If you bought the land now, it would, you'd be impossible to make an income off of it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, not, not um, impossible. There's ton- just, just much more challenging. <laughs> Hard. Yeah. There's there's a lot of grains grown here in Italy because the weather and the soil oh, is course. adapted to it. You know, and obviously Italy is relatively famous for, for spelt oh, and the yes. Roman army being 
run on it. Yeah. Um, but wheat is grown here and rice is grown here and the, oh, the yeah. millet and the sorghum that I buy is grown here and oats are grown here, our rye is grown here, really quite locally. Uh-huh. Um, and so we are we are blessed. In the UK, um, I remember I could get m- almost all of the grains. I struggled to get buckwheat, oh, really? the faux grain, um, and the um, health food store where I used to buy it said it was um from the packet said it was from england and i was 